good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Ed, and if you're new here, I'm, I'm one of the pastors, and we are so glad to have you. Uh, let me open us with a word of prayer. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us today. We have come making ourselves available. Holy Spirit, move. Word of God, speak. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today it's two for the price of one. We're really going to uh, cover two topics today, almost two uh, many sermons. I will have you out here by Wednesday afternoon. We're in the middle of our conversation about hearing from God, and there are almost as many emotional and spiritual responses to that as there are people here. Uh, everything from, um, you know, yay, I love hearing from God, and I hear from Him all the time, and I, and I love talking about it, to uh, what, you know, what, is, what does that mean? Uh, so let me remind those of you who, uh, like me, are natural skeptics, you may lean in that direction. The Bible assumes the kind of relationship with God in which He communicates to us, and, and followers of Christ over the centuries have, by their own testimonies, have reaffirmed that over and over again, hearing God's voice. Uh, I remember years ago, um, I had God uh, communicate to me, um, I want you to draw a circle around your day. Literally that phrase. And I, and I tell you that both um, as a, a way of communicating, I, I think that's, that's part of the discipline of, of building an atmosphere of hearing from him. Uh, what he was telling me was, I want you to spend time with me first thing in the morning to set your day and then at the end of your day I want you to spend some time with me evaluating the day and let's go over it together. Uh, I have to tell you that I'm pretty pitiful and, and that habit has, has not been regular for me even though God spoke that into my life. Um, I, I also tell you that to give you an instance of hearing from God and if he can speak to me he can speak to anyone. Last week we talked about establishing the right atmosphere, and we said that the atmosphere which encourages a dialogue from God includes at least four elements. First of all, an uncluttered inner life. Secondly, an atmosphere of dependence. Thirdly, an atmosphere of deep desire. And fourth, an atmosphere of rest. And we ended last week by throwing out one habit. We said we were going to follow up on it today. One very important life habit that helps us build the kind of atmosphere uh, in which we can hear from God. We can dialogue with Him. And, and that habit was Sabbath-keeping. So this habit was first introduced when God spoke directly and clearly to Moses. It's recorded for us in Exodus 20. Many of you know this story. In this conversation, God gave Moses 10 absolute requirements, 10 best ways to live. And the fourth requirement was this, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, your animals, nor the alien within your gates. That's pretty detailed and pretty clear. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, the Sabbath for Jews was observed from sundown on Friday, and you may know this, to sundown on Saturday. And in theory, 
And often in practice, it was a once a week, 24 hour period of rest and rejuvenation, physically and spiritually. Think about this. All world religions venerate some or certain holy people, like, like Buddhism honors, celebrates the Buddha. And almost all world religions venerate certain places. Uh, for Islam, uh, they honor Mecca. For uh, Hindus, it's uh, the Ganges River. But only the religion of the Bible honors a particular kind of time, the Sabbath. And we need to understand the cultural importance of this practice to kind of get what Jesus was communicating into the conversation and communicating to us. This will help us understand what, what he was talking about and why. There were essentially two things that set ancient Jews apart from the world around them, circumcision and Sabbath keeping. So it was of supreme importance to them, not just as a religious practice, but as a part of their identity. And that helps explain why rabbis over the centuries, you know, leading up to Jesus and afterwards, they, they wrote down and codified literally hundreds of rules and regulations which were intended to guide how one conducted themselves on the Sabbath. For example, do you know the Mishnah? Have you heard of that document before? It's a, it's, it's a collection of a whole bunch of uh, rabbis commenting on the Old Testament uh, script. Again, from centuries before Jesus to centuries after Jesus. And in the Mishnah, rabbis commenting on Sabbath explanations in the Old Testament, they listed 39 classes, categories, with lots of detail underneath. 39 classes of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath that they believed profaned the Sabbath. The list includes things that you would expect like plowing, hunting, gleaning, butchering. But the list also include work tasks like tying or loosening knots, not allowed on the Sabbath, uh, sewing more than one stitch, writing more than one letter, not like dear John, sewing one letter, or taking more than 1,900 steps. If you took more than 1,900 steps, it was technically a journey, not allowed on the Sabbath. You couldn't uh, set a dislocated foot or hand on the Sabbath, nor could you repair a fallen roof. However, you could prop it up, but you couldn't repair it. They literally tried to anticipate every hypothetical situation and either uh, forbid it or allow it. So you can easily imagine the kind of attitude and atmosphere that that sort of observance would encourage. When I was little, uh, Christian Sabbath was typically Sunday, and it was a big deal in my family. And I knew that uh, I couldn't go to the pool, for instance, which was my favorite activity as a kid. Uh, I couldn't uh, play cards. I couldn't play with my army men <laughs> on the Sabbath. I also couldn't cut the grass, which I thought was only fair. And in, in my mind, this whole Sabbath-keeping business, was, it was a bunch of rules. It was a bunch of do's, uh, well, a few do's, and a whole bunch of don'ts. And it's into that kind of world that Jesus inserted himself into the conversation and, and recaptured the original intent of the Sabbath. So 
I want us to hear his heart about this. I think this will help us as we imagine how we might incorporate this life habit into our schedules. And remember, what we're doing here is setting up the whole idea of building the right atmosphere into which God can speak into our lives. I want us to read Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 27, which is the primary point, not the only, but it's the primary point at which Jesus spoke into this business of the Sabbath. And here's what I want you to do. Here are some questions to contemplate here for a minute. In your seat, why were the disciples plucking heads of grain? What was driving the criticism of the Pharisees? And dig on on that, noodle on that for a minute. What does verse 27 suggest about our observance of the Sabbath? And that's the main one. Spend a minute there. Finally, what does verse 28 suggest about Jesus? Now, Sabbath keeping is not easy. Uh, Back when I was a boy who couldn't go to the pool, uh, the Christians used to get a serious cultural assist in, in keeping Sabbath. Generally, some of you are old enough to remember this, generally stores were all shut down, activities were not scheduled on uh, Sundays. People didn't work on Sunday, and again, Sunday was generally recognized as the Sabbath for Christians. Sabbath keeping wasn't easy, but it's much easier than it is today. Uh, we get no cultural assist today. Your, your work gives you no help. Kids' schedules are, the, Sunday's the, the busiest day. However, let's remember that even though it's not easy, Sabbath keeping isn't a suggestion. It's a command. And if you think about it, it's a command to take care of ourselves. It's a command to nurture our minds, bodies, and spirits with a day of stoppage. I'm not going to take the time to list the health benefits. I've got some research on this, and, and they are real, and they are very well documented. So in effect, God has ordered us to take care of ourselves. Why would we ignore this? It's also a command that helps us nurture an atmosphere of hearing from God. So here's what I want to encourage us to do. Let's plan how we're going to observe the Sabbath for the month of November. Let's just try it for the month of November. I've offered some help for those of you who need it in the going deeper section of your program. There are a set of questions to help you plan Sabbath for the next month. Some of you have this habit, so let's try to drill deeper. Let's, let's, let's go a little harder on this. For those of you who do not have this habit at all, a few of you may have never thought about it, use this as a, as a way to begin to create this rhythm in your life. I, some of the suggestions are, throw those suggestions up if you would, Pete. Plan the day that works for you. If you can't figure out a whole day, then start with a half day. It doesn't have to be Sunday. It needs to be a day that you can actually do this. Start and end. Think about this, starting and end with some kind of ritual. I've never done this, but I read this a, a bunch over the last few weeks of people who are really good at this. You know, like light a candle at the beginning and the end of the day just to signal to your mind and your body, we're starting something different today. Uh, spend some concentrated time with God. Do something fun and find something to do where you can be active. And I've also got a list of things that you definitely should not do. I literally, I encourage you to spend some time today or tomorrow. This won't take you but 15 minutes. Build a Sabbath plan for the month of November and let's try it. Okay, full stop. Let's imagine that we've done our best to nurture the right atmosphere to 
enable God to speak into our lives and our hearts. So let's imagine we're doing much or most of what we, we know how to do, we know we should do. Well, how does it happen? How does God communicate himself to us? And we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about that, and we're going to try to get eminently practical. And the right place, the best place for us to start, the only place for us to start is with the Bible. Uh, how does God communicate himself to us? It starts with the Bible. So let me explain. If my main vehicle for communicating with my wife, Diane, is my voice, and I have other ways of communicating, I, you know, my body communicates things, or, or uh, I can text, that's essentially my voice, but um, I can, etc. I got other ways of communicating, trust me. Uh, if my, but if my main way is my voice, in effect, uh, recognize that the Bible is God's voice. This is his main way of communicating with us. Are you familiar with the incident from Luke chapter 24 where the resurrected Jesus shows up and just starts walking alongside two of his followers? These guys had witnessed the death of Jesus, just witnessed it. They'd heard rumors that he was resurrected. They didn't know what to think, and they were confused and a little bit shell-shocked. They were just beginning the journey back to Galilee from Jerusalem. It's an eight-day walk. And on the first day, Jesus joined them. They didn't recognize them, him. We talked about this two weeks ago when we started this series of conversation. Listen to this. Luke records this as a part of that encounter. Luke chapter 24, verse 27 says this. Again, as part of that encounter. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. What a Bible study that must have been. <laughs> Pete Gregg, I like this, says this. When it comes to hearing God, the Bible is the language of God's heart. Nothing he says in any other way or in any other context will override, undermine, or contradict what he has already said in the Scriptures. And I suppose that this is why Jesus doesn't show up on the road outside of Jerusalem with these two guys and say, hey, it's me. You might think that that would be the right approach. Instead, he takes considerable time to do an exhaustive Bible study with, the, with them, and he builds the context for all that they've just witnessed and heard about. He puts his life, his death, and his resurrection inside God's whole story. This is where hearing from God begins. Knowing the Bible. The stories, the interactions, the poems, the prophecies, the historical scope, the miracles, the, the laments, the thoughts of God, the ways of God. Knowing this is where hearing from God begins. And let me offer you two ways that that just shows up in our lives. Uh, as we get familiar with the Bible, we get increasingly familiar with how God thinks and how he interacts with every kind of situation. We get familiar with his voice. We even get familiar with his tone and his thoughts in any given situation. My mother has been dead for 16 years, but I still know what she would say about certain events in my life, and I can even hear the tone of her voice. In fact, my wife Diane is pretty good at mimicking my mother. On occasion, we'll say, imagine what Clem would say about this, and then Diane will launch into um, 
a, a, a mimic of my mother and her tone, the Bible is that for God. We hear what he thinks, and not only so, we hear the tone of his voice as we learn more and more about the Bible. The Bible is where we hear from God. Secondly, <clears throat> sometimes, literally, God will speak to us through the words of the Bible, not just in the sense that we know what he's thinking, we know what he would be saying to us, but sometimes the words of Scripture are literally, through the words of the Bible, he will direct us, or he will change us, or he will convict us, or he will encourage us, literally, through the words of Scripture. To illustrate this point, I'm going to step beyond myself here and give you a couple of personal anecdotes from Dallas Willard, just to help this come alive for us. And I want you to hear these stories. I'm enjoying a McDonald's hot fudge sundae in Hong Kong, and my mother is on the phone. It's dad, she says, sounding frail, heart attack. The words go through me like a knife. They tried to resuscitate him. He'd been swimming in the sea, but your dear dad's gone to be with Jesus. I'm so sorry. I stumbled in my room feeling utterly alone and very far from home. Kneeling by my bed in a tiny hut dwarfed by a forest of neon skyscrapers, I turn to one of my dad's favorite psalms and the tears begin to flow. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, <clears throat> I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I am strangely strengthened. And now, I'm with a prayer team on the Mediterranean island of Ibiza, trying to shine a, a little light slap, a little bit of light, slap bang in the middle of Europe's biggest party scene. The island is suffering a major drought and its small Christian community has asked us to pray for rain. This feels like a very big prayer indeed and I don't have a lot of faith. But then as I climb into my car at the end of our prayer time, two remarkable things coincide. First, some rain starts splatting on the windshield and soon we're being drenched by the heaviest storm Ibiza has seen since 1976. And second, just as I'm doubting that our prayers have anything to do with this rain, I receive a random text message. A guy named Vanya is sitting in a prayer room thousands of miles away in St. Petersburg, Russia, knowing nothing about our prayer request in Ibiza or our activity, but sensing the Holy Spirit giving him a particular Bible reference for me, he offers 1 Kings 18. I look it up and let out a little gasp of surprise. An entire chapter of the Bible about praying for rain, concluding with a mighty downpour ending years of drought. Knowing God, I'm sorry, knowing the Bible is where knowing God and hearing God's voice begins. Now I want to give you three ways to approach the Bible that will help us hear God through it. These should all be practiced by uh, all of us at various times. You may have other ways of uh, other approaches to the Bible, but at least three, these three should be employed. They should be practiced and experimented with by all of us. These are three very practical ways of hearing from God through his primary means of communication, his word, the Bible. Number one, Bible study. Taking it apart, identifying what this word means, looking this word up in other parts of the Bible, in other parts of where this author of this part of the Bible uses it, trying to understand how this 
kind of writing in the Bible happens. You know, the poems and songs of Psalm are different than the narrative of, of Matthew. Matthew's even a little different than, than John, and both of those are certainly very different than the prophecies of the Old Testament, all of which are extremely different from the book of Revelation. Trying to understand some of those differences, the Bible was written between 2,000 and 3,400 years ago, that much removed from us. It takes some work to understand it. Do that work. I know that many of you try to have some kind of devotional connection with God, and, and often for some of you, your devotional life in, includes reading one of those books or uh, online resource where they give you a verse or three verses and then several inspiring paragraphs about it, and that's awesome. But don't let that be the only part of your diet. Study the Bible. Study God's Word. Do the work. You can start with a good study Bible. You can get one from Amazon, a good study Bible, and Google. You can find a ton of information these days. There's no excuse for us. You will grow past that, but start there. Many of you are already well past that, so do the work, even those of you who are well past that. Dig in, do the work. The Bible is where hearing from God begins. Study it. Second way of approaching the Bible for us is to meditate on it. Uh, the Bible itself is pregnant with encouragements to study it, to know it, and to meditate on it. Listen to this, Joshua 1.8. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be successful and prosperous. The best way I've found of meditating on God's Word for me is to commit it to memory. And I've done so with chapters, I've done so with books of the Bible, I've done so with large sections of the Bible, I've done so with verses of the Bible. Literally commit them to memory. Phil Salee introduced to me years ago what has become a habit for me. I will record myself on my voice memo reading a section of the Bible, and then I can just play it several times a day to myself as I try to repeat one phrase and then a second phrase, and I commit it to memory. And I try to get it word perfect, absolute every A and and the, because if I get it word perfect, then a year from now, if I need to marshal that verse from my memory, it's there. Uh, it's at least very, very close. If I get it in my memory very, very close, then a year from now, I'll be saying, Wait, what was it? What did this? What was that? So I commit it to memory as a way of meditating. Meditate on God's word. Third, I want to commend the ancient practice of Lectio Divina. In case you've never heard this term before, I'm going to read you the uh, inerrant definition from Wikipedia. Wikipedia said, uh, Lectio Divina is a monastic practice of scriptural reading, meditation, and prayer intended to promote communion with God and to increase the knowledge of God's Word. It's, it's centuries old, and it's a way of putting yourself in the story of the Bible. It uses multiple readings. It, it's used slowing down, even using our imagination to, to train our mind on what God might be saying through this passage and putting ourselves in it and let us and, and sitting in it for a while. Three ways of approaching the Bible and use these ways of approaching it and others because this is where hearing from God begins, so do the work. All right. Uh, all God's people said?
Yeah, so um, let's do a little bit of lab work. You may have thought we were done with lab work, but we're not. Um, let's spend a little time practicing this right now. And we're going to use a passage that will be familiar to some of you. 1 Kings chapter 19. So uh, take a couple of deep breaths and everybody get comfortable. And I'm going to read first uh, 1 Kings 19, uh, 9 and 10. I'll read out loud. You read silently along with me. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So Elijah has just experienced, leading up to this, a dramatic move of God, one of the all-star moves of God. If you know the story, this is when he's up on the mountain and he calls fire down on the sacrifice. He tells all the prophets of Baal, hey, you see if, if God can burn up this altar and they pray and dance and cut themselves, nothing happens. And Isaiah steps up to the altar, prays, and boom, God brings fire down from heaven. Very few people in human history have experienced the kind of outpouring of God that Elijah has experienced. You and I might think, wow, I mean, if I saw that, I would never doubt, never question for a minute. And then the queen begins to threaten Elijah and all the prophets of Yahweh. She starts killing people and Elijah runs. And he's scared to death and he feels sorry for himself. So, I'm going to read that section again, and this time I don't want you to read along with me, I want you to close your eyes. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I want you now, if you would, to imagine a time in your life, maybe it's right now, of great discouragement. Try to get in touch with your own discouragement about something. Holy smokes, this is just not working. Now I want you to put that discouragement into Elijah's circumstances. See yourself with Elijah alone, running, scared. Keep your eyes closed. The Lord God said, Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. I want you to keep your eyes closed, but stand with me if you would. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out 
and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice came and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you.